Gordon off. If you'd turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to chapter 1 of Colossians. And if my message is a, 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 a title at all this morning, is, it's really, it's Christ is enough. You don't need any more. So let's uh, look at Colossians. Christ is enough. You don't need any more. And I want to read from verse 23 down to verse 29. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae, and this is what he says. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye he- have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my suffering for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may, be, uh, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working, which worketh in me, mightily. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just as uh, we open this book this morning, I am very aware, Heavenly Father, that this is your word. It's not been written by men. So this has a purpose. Your word, every, every last jot and tittle in it, dear Lord Almighty. So I ask that you would be with me this morning that you would be in charge of everything that comes out of my mouth, Heavenly Father, but more important, the souls gathered in this building that are listening to this, Lord Almighty, they need to meet with you this morning. They need to know you more. They need to be drawn closer to you. They don't need to hear from William Campbell. They need to hear from God. To that end, Heavenly Father, I commit this entire service and preaching to you and I rest entirely in you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, we're, we're looking at the, the book of Colossians. Even a, cur- a courtesy glance at the book of Colossians tells you that the theme is the, the preeminence of Christ. But her- heresy was beginning to creep into the church of Colossae. And I'll deal with that in a minute. But I, I want to give you a, a sort of an idea of the Colossian church and where it came from, how, how it was set up. Because the church of Colossae was not planted by the Apostle Paul. Indeed, the Apostle Paul had never been at Colossae. He didn't know anybody apart from one or two men that he had met on his missionary journeys who were associated with Colossae. But the church, the Colossian church was actually, we believe, founded by a man called Epaphras. If you look at verse 7 in chapter 1, here's what uh, Paul says. As he also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, 
who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So the chances are it's Epaphras that actually planted this church. But he's talking to the Apostle Paul. And here's the thing, the the letter to the Colossians is actually one of Paul's prison epistles. This was written the first time that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Along with Ephesians, Philippians and, and the letter to Philemon. So how did Epaphras get in touch with Paul? Well, he was in Rome with him. And this this again is a a bit... um, We're not absolutely certain whether Epaphras was arrested and imprisoned with Paul because in Philemon, Paul refers... Philemon 23, I think it is, Paul refers to Epaphras as his fellow prisoner in Christ. Now, whether that's actually a physical prisoner or a prisoner for the gospel, we're not absolutely clear. But here's the thing. Colossae is 1,200 to 1,300 miles away from Rome. And what I actually think happened is that this heresy has come in and Epaphras has taken that journey, the best part of 2,500 miles. And, And let me tell you, there's no easy jet. There's no train system. There's no even tarmac roads. This is either on Shanks' pony, he's walking it, or he's catching lifts on, on goods wagons that are going in that direction. Because Colossae used to be quite a centre of commerce. But this, this, by the time this letter was written, about 60, 61 AD, it had died away. It was a backwater village at this time. So what was going on in Colossae that would make Epaphras get up and travel 1,200 miles in one direction to come back? He was dealing with heresy. There was doctrines that were being taught in the church at Colossae that were actually in danger of completely destroying the congregation. And Epaphras thought it so, so serious that he had to go and see Paul. Never get tired of preachers that preach doctrine. <laughs> never, never, ever, ever. It's vitally important. It's the most important thing because, because what we believe dictates what we practice. And, and, that, and that's the centre of... Uh, that's why doctrine's important. So there's a problem in Colossae and the heresy that was being put forward it, it comes under the name of Gnosticism. I love having a big word. It, may, it makes me look brainy. I read it in a book. Don't worry about it. It's a thing called Gnosticism and it was a, a coming together of, of three different heretical groups. They'd all clumped together in Colossae. The first heretical ones were the Gnostics they were pagan in their origin the second ones were actually Jewish and they were legalistic in their origin and the third was Christian and the Christians didn't deny Christ but what they done was set them aside so let me give you a bit more detail about what was going on here the first one was the, the pagan heresy and this was being propagated by a group that came to be known as Gnostics. Now, again, 
It's a Greek word, and here's what it means. It means knowledge. All right? And here's what the Gnostics were telling the Colossians. That secret knowledge had been given to some of the apostles. And they had that secret knowledge. They were purveyors, they were possessors of knowledge that the other apostles, the other uh, apostles didn't have. But if you do what they say and if you join their cult, you will have an understanding of this. Now again with the book of Colossians, Paul doesn't come straight out and name the problem. All right, one commentator likened it to what we are doing with the book of the Colossians is you're listening into one half of a telephone conversation. And you can hear one half of the conversation. You don't know everything that's being said, but you can hear that there's something wrong. You know there's something wrong. And it's very easy nowadays to do it because most people on their mobile phones have it on speaker and hold their phone like that. When they're t- so you can get everybody's con- you get the whole conversation. But with the, book, the letter to the Colossians, what we're doing is listening into a conversation that Paul is having with those people. And in different points, in different verses, he gives us a picture of what the problem is with these Gnostics. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Here's the first sort of warning sign he flings up. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The Gnostics were telling these people that uh, they were given their interpretation of Scripture, how they said that it was understood. And again, it's under this background of being secret knowledge. They believed that all matter was evil, everything that you touched was evil. So what that meant is you had to withdraw from the world. You had to uh, live a very separated life, a very, very austere life. And what they said was that this secret knowledge that they had, that's going to lead you to greater spiritual experience. It's wonderful. And this experience was the knowledge and understanding of the meeting with angels. Look at chapter 2 verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, Blotting out the... Oh, sorry, I'm looking at the... the, Give me a second, I've just jumped a wee bit. Verse 18, sorry. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humiliation or humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which which he hath not seen, Vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. And this is the culmination of their their doctrine. What they said was that that if you hold to our philosophy, if you come into our cult, what's going to happen is you're going to have fabulous spiritual experiences. You're going going to meet with angels. You're going to have uh, spiritual experiences beyond the realm of any normal Christian. 
And it's done, the way they do it is very interesting. It's done through, Paul calls it, a voluntary humility. These guys looked humble in the outside. They just looked as if butter wouldn't melt in their mouth, as if they wouldn't harm a baby. There's an old saint, uh, Ivan Thompson, used to preach in Northern Ireland. He, 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 he came out of the bars and the pubs. He was a wonderful, very down-to-earth preacher. But his, his saying used to be, uh, my humility is my strongest point. And it, it's a joke, you know, he was saying it as a joke. But for these people, it was very real. So what, it had, what, what they were telling the Colossians is, is that they had secret knowledge, but to an untrained eye, it looked as if they might be right. Because they carried the humility of Christianity. Oh, I, I'm so humble, I would never hurt anybody. So they were deceptive. The second stage, the second part of the, the heresy was a, a. Now remember, this is a joining together, this is a coming together of three different religious practices. The second part was Jewish in its nature. Look at verse 14 where I sent you to earlier. Uh, verse 14, uh, Paul, Paul does away with the law in this. He says he's blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The Jewish element was trying to re-establish the Mosaic law. If you look at verse 16... Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. So there's an observance of the Mosaic law. There's a keeping of holy days. And then the Christian element quite simply is that they did not deny Christ, but they denied his divinity. And they denied the saving work on the cross. And they called themselves Christian. So there's an onslaught. It's a coming together of three heresies rolled up into one. And Epaphras seen the danger of this, the danger it was doing to Christians. So he went and seen Paul about it. See, the thing about this The thing about these heretics is, now we can sit here in a good Bible-believing church, in a Bible-preaching church, and, and we really have no grasp how lucky we are. Because you've got to understand the promises that these men are making is, is that you're going to have a better Christian life. You're going to have a more spiritual Christian life. You're going to ha- meet with powerful spiritual beings. And it's very seductive. And you've got to understand, this not only applies to 2,000 years ago, you can get this teaching here now today. But they're promised a powerful, a powerful prayer life. They promised the, the speaking in tongues. They promised further revelation from God. Wonderful. What Christian wouldn't want to know more of God? What Christian wouldn't want to have a, an absolutely fabulous prayer life? And we'll see it in the charismatic movement. We'll see it in hyper-Pentecostalism. Even the Alpha course, the innocuous Alpha course that the, 
the Anglicans and the, and the Methodists employed. Do you know what the culmination of the, uh, the Alpha course is? A weekend Holy Ghost experience. And the Alpha course has been credited with rejuvenating the Anglican and the Methodist Church. It's out there. And, and guys, we live in a, a, a spiritual bubble. I thank the Lord for it. There is a hedge round us called the Word of God. And we've been blessed with faithful preachers who will hold to the Word of God and hold us to the Word of God. And hey, we need to hold them to the Word of God. Because when Paul answers these critics, here's what he does. He preaches Christ and the fact that Christ is enough. Paul puts two arguments forward for Christ's sufficiency. The first one is in creation. Look at chapter 1 verse 14 for me please. Paul's going to argue for Christ and he's going to put forward two arguments. He starts here in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Right away he starts off with the idea that actually it's Christ's blood that saved your soul. But he goes on. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. I mean, there's science in this. Guys, you've got to, you've got to understand there's, there's science that scientists today are beginning to realise are, are involved in these scriptures. Here's the question that science can't argue for you yet. What holds this universe together? Well, they're going to tell you it's gravity, which is probably correct. But do you know that science today has no idea what gravity actually is? They have absolutely no concept of what gravity is. We can only see it at work. But Paul goes on there and he says and what these verses provide is, is first of all he calls Christ the firstborn of every creature and that doesn't mean he's the first person born because he wasn't the first person born. Who was the first person born? No, but Adam wasn't born, Adam was created. I just thought I'd fling that in to make sure you're awake. All right, uh, Ding. But Abel, uh, well actually Cain was the first person born and Abel was the second. This idea of firstborn it, it has two connotations. What it means is it, it's a positional thing. See, King David in Israel is called uh, the, the firstborn. He isn't the firstborn. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. It's a positional thing. Uh, Jesus Christ is placed in front of everybody. And secondly, he's the firstborn who died, rose again. Now here's the key, never to die again. 
And this is the idea that Paul's covering with being firstborn. He's the firstborn of every, every creature. And then what Paul then does is he, 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 he cuts down all of the angelic offices, the structures of the, the, the angelic order. This, when he's talking about thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, he's talking about earthly thrones, earthly dominions. But he's also talking about the heavenly thrones and heavenly dominions because not all angelic beings are the same. I'm trying to skirt over things. Guys, we could spend a bit of time here and I'm no going to. The point I really want to get to is Christ is enough. You don't need any more. But Christ, uh, Paul argues from creation. And Paul also argues in verse 17 that by him all things consist. All things are held together. He's the head of the body. And what he actually means there is he, Christ himself, is the head of the body. And, and what that means is from Christ, the body of the church was brought forth. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm sorry. So Paul argues from creation that by him everything was created, by everything, him everything is held together. And this you'll find supported in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Christ is the creator of the universe. And then he argues from the church, look at verse 18. And he is head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The church came from Christ. So Christ has got to be preeminent. It's a simple enough argument. Without Christ, there is no church. So Paul's dismantling the arguments of these heretics. Because when we're faced with heresy, we've got to be able to argue for the Bible. It's not enough just to shout at them and tell them, hey, you're wrong, and walk away. You've got to be able to stand your ground. And here we get to the passage of Scripture that we read, and we have, for me, which is something that I always struggled with, it says in verse 23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature where, uh, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now get this, verse 24, who now rejoice in my suffering for you and, filled up, and fill up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ. Joy and suffering. Tell me what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because as far as I'm concerned, the second last thing Christ said on the cross is it is finished. There was no more payment for sin. So what's Paul saying that Christ's afflictions are lacking? And why is Paul saying something so actually horrendous if you think about it that we rejoice in suffering? See, these are things that, I mean, I kept away from these verses for, for yonks because 
I couldn't, I couldn't get it round my head. The end of verse 27 actually nails it down. Whom, verse 27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here's this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Christ understood now the suffering Paul is talking about is persecution for being a Christian. He's in jail. If you suffer because you're a pain in the backside, a thief, a liar, a cheat, hey, it's your own fault. The Lord hardened you. It serves you right. But if you remember when Paul was stopped, stopped on the road to Damascus and Christ asked him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, Paul never attacked Christ. Paul never laid a hand in Christ. Paul had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Christ. But Paul, so, uh, Saul persecuted Christians. And here's what we've got to understand, brothers and sisters. See, when the world attacks us because of our Christian witness, they're no attacking us, they're attacking Christ. That's who they're attacking. So when Paul uh, rejoices in his sufferings, he's rejoicing that the gospel's actually working. See, there's Christians that aren't suffering persecution because they're not doing anything for God. The Bible tells us all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So see, Paul, in his sufferings, what he knew was is that God was at work in his life. And the reason God was at work in his life is because the world hated him. Those late afflictions coming to Christ, those are late afflictions that the body of Christ suffers because of their witness. But Paul rejoices in that phrase at the end of verse 27. Here's here's the absolute truth for a believer. Christ is in you. And that is your hope of glory. And what the outworking of that should be is it doesn't really matter. Now, as long as we are living godly in Christ Jesus, we should have no care for what this world throws at us. Nothing at all. It doesn't matter what shape hardship takes. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that is a sure knowledge of a home in heaven. Christ is preparing a place for us even now. But what if, what if you're not a Christian? Here's the question I want to ask, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a straightforward question. What hope have you got? And it's a very, it's a sober answer. Because the answer is none at all. If you're outside of Christ and this life comes to an end, you have no hope. You've no leg to stand on, you've no defence, you've nothing to hide behind. See, I'm not even going to defend myself against God. Do you know who defends me against God for, uh, in front of God? Christ defends me. 
I'm not going to heaven because I've lived a wonderful holy life. I'm going to heaven because I realized how awful a person I really was. And I ask God to forgive me in Christ's name. But if you're a person that's never ever come to that point, you may be very close to it, but had Judas kissed the very door of heaven and walked away to hell. I put it to you that if you don't have Christ as your saviour, if Christ is not in you, then you have no hope of glory. And how you deal with that, that's entirely up to you because nobody can do it for you. So how do we get ourselves into a position where we know right from wrong? How can we safeguard, we can't, well, how can we safeguard against being seduced by heresy? Because heresy, wrongdoing initially, looks good. You've got to understand that. If I was to try and bring some heretical doctrine in here and say, hey, I know a way to have a fabulous relationship with God, and you say, wonderful William, tell us, tell us, hey, we're going to go up onto the roaches at midnight and sacrifice goats. Hopefully you'd see it. Dave's sitting there thinking, oh, that might be nice. <laughs> you would spot it, hopefully, right away. That isn't how heresy works. Heresy creeps in a little at a time. A little lie here, a little lie there, a little deviation for practice. So how do we safeguard against that? Well, again, we've got to sort of look on the side. We've got to listen into the conversation. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. And there's wee things that Paul drops in as he's talking with the Colossians that, that point towards how you're going to be settled in your belief, in your understanding, in your knowledge of God. Look at verse 9. Paul speaking says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might, now get this, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So first of all, Paul's wanting you to get to understand God's knowledge and his will for your life. Look at verse 10. That ye might, now secondly, that, that, now that knowledge, that wisdom and spiritual understanding should have an impact on your life. Because look at verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord. And look at verse 23. How do you get this spiritual knowledge? How do you get this understanding? How do you walk worthy of the Lord? Look at verse 23 again. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled. That word settled means means steadfast. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached unto every creature. Do you know how you get grounded and settled? uh, It's in the word of God. And actually Jesus in a way, highlighted the problem that Christians have. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, it tells us that he was speaking to Jewish people who believed on him. So they were believers already. 
And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall, now get this, make you free. Many people put the word sit in there, know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. No, what Jesus is saying is, if you become a student of the word of God, it will actually impact your life to the point where you will have a full prayer life. You will sit down with God and you will not just be rhyming off a list of prayers. You'll have a, sit and have a conversation with him, which is the way it should be. You will find that when disaster strikes your life, it won't break you. It won't reduce you to a gibbering, gibbering wreck. It will sustain you. But do you notice the two different peoples in those verses? There's believers and there's disciples. What's the difference? If you're saved this morning, you're a believer. But a disciple, a disciple's a pupil that follows a tutor. And here's what we've got to ask ourselves. Are we actually students of the word of God? We might read it. We might even do our annual Bible reading program and run through the entire Bible in a year, which is a good thing. But do you ever stop and study it? Could you get through the Bible in a year and come to the end of it and not actually be any more spiritually intelligent, have any more spiritual understanding? You need to be grounded in the Word of God and to be grounded you need to have an understanding of it. And I was wondering how I could illustrate this and the Lord gave us an illustration on Wednesday night. And, and it, just, it just fell right in. And I, I'll not give you any great details, but there was two ladies spoke up on Wednesday night. You, you should get along to the prayer meeting. This is where you get grounded and settled in the Word of God. You need to get along to the Bible studies. But two ladies spoke up. God bless them for it. And one, both of them were Christians from a young age. And one of them said that She'd, had, she'd been well taught as a child in her Bible. And so when she got her adolescent years and got into school, and there was a bit of teasing, but she never experienced a great deal of bullying because she was able to answer her detractors. Because she knew what the Bible taught, and she held to what the Bible had taught. But another one of her ladies had a very different experience. Saved as a young person, Christian from a young age. But absolutely no teaching in the Bible. And its structures and its, and, and its doctrines. And she suffered terribly as a teenager. Really bullied. Because she had no answers. See, this, this becoming a student of the word of God, it has an impact in her real life. It's going to put us in a position where, first of all, we're settled in who Christ is. We're going to know who Christ is and we're going to understand his doctrines. So should somebody come in and try to teach us something different, we're equipped to sit down with a Bible and say, well, no, hold on a minute, you're, you're, that's not right. You've got that wrong. It's been a bit of a 
mechanical sort of message this morning. But see, do you know what I want you to do? I want you to go away and sit down with your Bibles. Yourself. Do you know that a pastor's desire is to see people who don't actually need a pastor to understand their Bible? Now, God's given us pastors and they're wonderful tools, but you realise a preacher is a helpmate. He's not to be our sole source of scriptural understanding. We need to get a grip on it ourselves because it will ground you in your Bible. It will establish, it will strengthen you in your Christian life. I'm sorry if it's been a bit mechanical. Normally I do get emotional, but no this morning I didn't want to be. Because I want to strengthen you. I want to build you up. I want to encourage you. Because here, here's the absolute bottom line. If you're a believer this morning, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, living with you, will never leave you, never forsake you, will always, always be with you. Until we go to glory and have our new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pause for